Hi, everybody. Welcome to Judy's Podcast. I'm Mr. Judy, right here for another lecture in my CEUS history class here at Viewmont High School. And today, the title of the lecture is called Rise of Early Colonies in America. And what we're primarily going to take a look at is the basic history and some of the highlights from the settlement of Jamestown in 1610 to the Seven Years' War or the French and Indian War in the 1750s and how we get from being a brand new up and coming place for people to go and and try and strike out and find our fortune to a civilized society on the brink of separating itself from Great Britain. So sit back, pull up those questions that I have for you to answer as you listen to the podcast. And if I go a little too fast, look at your settings. You can slow, slow it down. If you want it to go a little faster, you can increase that. If you need to go back, you have the controls. Make this your experience. But let's go. Okay, this first section here, I call it the Chesapeake Conundrum, and we're going to take a look specifically at the Chesapeake Bay area in Virginia, that eastern coastline. This is where Jamestown is going to be founded upon in 1610. And taking a look at Jamestown specifically and the Americas as a whole, one I think is fair to ask why did the British decide to go there and settle? Why not the Dutch? Why not the Spanish, the Portuguese, the Italians? Why was it the British that really wanted to go and settle there? The, the British are going to be the first ones to really see America as an investment, something to really put money into and, and find that return and see if it increases your riches. And when you look at these other countries, England really is on the short side of natural resources. And because it lacks those basic natural resources, anytime England can acquire another piece of land to help provide those, those natural resources that it lacks, it's really gonna make that, that effort to do so. And so Jamestown was seen as this. The expedition and settlement of Jamestown was created as what we call a joint stock enterprise. This means that several investors are going to pool their wealth together in hopes of making a profit. And in this case, Jamestown is going to be the settlement. Some rich people put their money together. They send others over. And they say, go find something to make us rich. It could be gold. You could cut down trees. You could grow something. Like, give us a good return on our investment. And the government gave this group of businessmen a charter for Jamestown. And it's basically like a contract from the government that that this group of investors was loaned the land. And as long as they maintain the land, which also means, you know, protecting it militarily, um, this, this group was going to have the rights to that land. And so initial failures happen. If you were to go back and look at the ship logs, you would find that we didn't really send over the best people or England didn't send over the best people in that first run. A lot of a lot of people to go and sit and watch. Not a lot of workers, not a lot of specialized workers. So that first winter in Jamestown was really, really harsh. And after we come out of the winter, 
we're looking at about a 60 to 80 percent death rate from that first group that came through. And so on the second round of, of supplies, we start to send more specialized workers and people that are essential to a community to help starting a build. Now, the thing that's really going to separate Jamestown and help put on a map, help get it going, is going to be tobacco. And this is where you start to see kind of a unique political intrigue start to happen. The Spanish had the monopoly on tobacco and did everything within their power to make sure that other countries or other merchants, whoever, were not going to get involved in a tobacco trade. The Spanish really liked having that monopoly because at this point in time in the 15 or 1400s, 1500s, 1600s, this is when you really start to see tobacco exploding in in Europe as a popular item to consume. And it went from a luxury item down to a casual item that anybody could access and was just a source of enormous profits. So a group of these British settlers in Jamestown, Virginia, steal tobacco seeds from the Spanish. And it turns out this area in Virginia seems to be pretty good for growing tobacco. And now the British are getting into the tobacco game. They pose a legit threat to the Spanish. And this encourages other investors, encourages the crown, and encourages everybody in England to look towards America and really invest in it, prevent more failures, send the right people, continue sending more and more people, build this up as, as kind of a, a secondary base. And as part of that buildup, there is a lot of indentured servants that arrive, arrive in America. And these indentured servants, right, they're signing a contract to work off a debt or a crime. But, I mean, they're a commodity at this point. And so you do start to see among the wealthy in England kind of the trading and swapping of servants for maybe other goods or for different pieces of land. And a lot of indentured servants start to arrive in America. And this also starts to change the attitude of those in England and even throughout the rest of Europe of who's looking to go into America, why, and, and starting to see success stories. And so more and more people want to go. It becomes a very popular place. Now, I mentioned earlier, Jamestown was initially initially kind of thought of an offshore business it, and it settled under a company charter, right? So there's business rights and business law involved, but now it's becoming a settlement. And because of the rapid growth of Jamestown within the first nine to 10 years, slaves are now imported and the expansion is now pushing into more and more of Native American land. And because there's within most Native American thought processes and philosophies, you don't actually lose until you have a meeting with the chief of the other tribe. The natives knew enough about British culture within the 10 years, that first 10 years of, of the British being in Jamestown to know that the King of England was, was the chief of that tribe. And because there was no renunciation of lands to the chief, the Native Americans constantly battled the British about 
about who owns the land, the rights, and access to different parts. Because the wars between the British settlers and the Native Americans were becoming such a constant threat and pressure, the King of England actually has to send over part of his royal army to assist these settlers. He's not too pleased about it. I don't think most people were, were very pleased about it. But the whole idea was to send over a bigger and greater force to put down any rebellions and, and to settle any issues of land, which happened, by the way. And because of this, now that the king is getting involved in sending his own army, he's going to take that business charter away from the, initial, from the early investors. And he's going to take it for himself and he's going to add the wealth of Jamestown to his own crown. So we see expansion of farms. Again, this descent and the king is is kind of annoyed that now he has to help protect it. But at the same point in time, remember this, this saying is going to come up a lot throughout the year. Money makes the world go round. The more money you have, the more opportunities you have. And right now we're focusing on that British and American relationship. But this is also an era of wars for Britain. And Britain is going to also need to refill the coffers and... And finance these wars somehow, and they're going to use America to do it, specifically Jamestown. All right, third section. Now, we're going to take a look at the rise of religion and society in the New England area. And I'm generally not super big on making you know dates in class and and even geography sometimes is something I'm kind of willing to skip over in order to to look at maybe the process of of why that geography matters more but I want you to know the New England states as a region these states include Connecticut Maine which comes later after the birth of America, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Rhode Island, and Vermont. Basically, we're looking at everything north, northeast of New York State. And so while we have this initial group that goes down into Virginia and settles in, in Jamestown, the next big major group that we're going to talk about that comes to America is the group that settles in Plymouth, right? The pilgrims. And we talk mostly about like this religious separatist group that just couldn't really find a home in, in Europe and bounced around different areas, but due to religious conflicts within Europe, as a result of, of Martin Luther and the Protestant Reformation, these, these groups are just having a hard time to find and they go and they beg the King of England. And he says, okay, just go away, go to America. And they show up. And that's, True to a point, but you generally miss one major detail in this, and that major detail is the king grants the, the pilgrims a royal charter to go to America, to this Plymouth area, specifically because he wants to get rich again. It's another joint stock enterprise that shares that similarity with Jamestown. Pilgrims arrive in 1620, and this is the first major 
major American policy thing that we point to, the Mayflower Compact. The Mayflower Compact is a document and is the first document of self-government in American history. It creates an assembly of all male members to make decisions for the whole. And, and this is where we start to see the real foundations and beginnings of American government. A lot like Jamestown, there were issues with Native Americans. And I think we remember the stories from elementary school about how Natives showed the British settlers in, in Plymouth how to, how to grow things like corn using fish, among other examples. But the, the climate in the soil in Massachusetts is not particularly great for, for growing. And so Plymouth really starts to rely on cod fishing, timber or wood, and then just being a major shipping port for their for their growth and expansion and how to make money. Very soon, we we have the Plymouth Colony and then we have the Massachusetts Bay Colony, the MBC. You might recognize this more as Salem. And if the first thing that you think of when I say the word Salem is, oh yeah, the witch trials. Yes, yes, absolutely. But we're going to get to that later. So Salem is going to be founded by the, the Puritans, and this is going to begin a cultural shaping of New England because of the Puritan way of life. A lot of religious separatist groups didn't lead a, a social life, a personal life as far as actions that different than maybe members of the Catholic Church. However, the Puritans are going to be very different with the way that one handles their life. Another kind of cool moment about foundations of American government. So within the Massachusetts Bay Colony, there is a need for a leader. And sometimes you have to determine what to call this leader. The, the title that is settled upon is governor. And John Winthrop is, uh, is the first governor that we see in American history as somebody that hold that that title. And today, of course, the governor is the chief executive of the state level. And at this time, the governor was going to be the chief executive of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Another colony founded by Royal Charter. And within this charter, there was a little bit more latitude given as far as what what could be done government-wise, there's going to be a governor, a board of magistrates, kind of think of this as like almost a city council um, to the governor. And then you have members. It's kind of like we're starting to we're starting to get a little bit of like an executive and legislative branch in this. And then eventually we're going to have more of a formal, formal legislative branch with houses of Congress under under Winthrop and those that that follow him. Of course, with the Puritan group, though, in the NBC, church and state are very close and almost in, indistinguishable between laws. Like the laws of church are probably going to be the laws of the NBC. And this starts to create a little bit of contention within the society. A man named Roger Williams is actually going to defect and kind of leave society. And his whole basis is that colonists are stealing land that is not theirs. And in the Bible, one of the Ten Commandments is thou shalt not steal. 
And this is really the basis of Roger Williams and his his philosophy. And so he says, we're stealing land from somebody else who was already here. But at the time, the way that that we viewed Native Americans was not very pleasant. And because it wasn't pleasant, many saw Roger Williams as kind of a radical. And so he was actually going to be sentenced to death, but he escapes and he takes him and his followers. They go a little south of Massachusetts. They sign a treaty, form a colony called Providence. Of course, if you know where this is going, that that colony of Providence becomes a city of Providence, which is current day Rhode Island. And so that's how Rhode Island is created is as a as a break off of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. And then this kind of becomes an example, but also a haven for other dissident type groups and other settlers looking for religious toleration, maybe some to look for increased relationships with the Native Americans or or maybe you don't fit into that Puritan or Pilgrim religious type type group. And so this is when you start to see Connecticut pop up and New Hampshire and Vermont. And the last thing that I'll talk about with the New England colonies is King Philip's War. This took place in 1675, and this is really a major event for the northeastern part of what is now the United States because what happens is, is we have the colonists versus the Native Americans. And this is going to be kind of the big, big war on who's going to have ownership of the area. This is what we call a Pyrrhic victory. The colonists put so much strength and so many resources in towards making this, this fight go their way that they didn't really have a whole lot left over, which again, is is important but the colonists defeat the natives the natives then start to retreat out of the new england area and white rule is going to go unchallenged in new england from here on out but because the resource because the colonists use so many resources now the king and the government is going to step in and now this is going to be a mixed or a shared ownership of the Massachusetts and Plymouth areas as, as well as the lands that started coming afterwards like Rhode Island and New Hampshire and Vermont and Connecticut. Okay, this part is gonna be really, really quick. We're gonna quickly kind of fill in a few of the states between Virginia and north of New York. Like the New England colonies, the state of Pennsylvania is going to largely be settled by some religious outcasts. In this case, we're looking at the Quakers. And while the, the, the Quaker movement was starting to build within England, it doesn't mean that this group was, again, necessarily very welcome there. However, the Penn family was pretty wealthy and had once upon a time lent the king money and was now owed money from the king. And so as the Penn family kind of being the leading and most visible family that 
that belonged to the Quaker group approached the king and said, hey, we'd like some refuge so we can practice our religious beliefs. And William Penn convinces the king to repay him in the form of land in a new world. The king agrees, allows William Penn and his followers to travel to the new world. And this is where you start to get Pennsylvania. Um, again, small, takes a while, but is now one of the more populous states in America. The Dutch came in and and had also found a piece of land called the New Netherlands. And after a series of wars and increased pressure between the Dutch and the British, and then there's tension over land rights and who gets to own exactly what piece of dirt. There's going to be three small wars, but after those wars, the British finally kicked the Dutch out of New Netherlands. The king, being grateful for the support of his lords, turns to repay them for their fealty and for their support and for their armies and grants his brother some property in the new world for his help. Of course, the property being the former New Netherlands. And his brother happened to be or happened to hold the title Duke of York and didn't like the name of New Netherlands. And so he renamed it after himself. And we go from New Netherlands with New Amsterdam as his capital to the state of New York with the city of New York. And from New York, we start to get some communities on the southeast side, just start to overgrow. And if you've ever been to New York City, you'll start to know it's a very crowded area. Sometimes people like their space. There was continued growth on the southeast side. This growth eventually leads to New Jersey. And then the growth from, from Virginia in that northeastern quadrant of, of Virginia is going to also lead to, lead to Maryland. Now, below Virginia, you have, or to the south of it, you have North and South Carolina. Because of the strong agricultural sense in Virginia, it was very easy for the king to, to grant these charters to others. And so through royal charters to new merchants, we get North Carolina and South Carolina. So kind of wrapping up, we don't totally have all 13 colonies yet. Some just grow out of others. Some are done by royal charter or by joint stock enterprise. But what we start to see is major population booms in the United States. And because of those population booms, people are going to start to spread out, start to settle different areas and really start to fill in between the lines that we had. Now, with that being said, it was from coastline to the mountains, to the Appalachian Mountains. And today, it doesn't seem like a lot of space. And even back then, it didn't seem like a total lot of space. But people really want to start kind of filling in the gaps because it was very much like the American West once we start to get to that point and settle it. You could come to America. Nobody knew your name. Nobody knew your past. Nobody even knew why you were here unless you wanted to tell them. All that we knew was you came here and you needed to contribute to society. And if you did, you could. And society succeeded and grew and got better because of you. Nobody really cared about your background. And so 
there was quite a mix of the type of people that came to America. And this is why we start to talk about America being a melting pot and having so many different cultures and perspectives and beliefs, because we saw that in the founding. And it's important to remember that we've always been this way. And America is constantly at its best when we stay that way, when we are open to new perspectives and when we all pitch in to society and not just wait for for somebody, whether it's the government or the rich or the the intellectual to take care of us and always tell us what to do. But when we really have that sense of unity, that's when we're at our best. And for many people, it was either come here and be successful or come here and die. And option number two didn't really seem seem very appealing. And option number one very much was. And so if you go to the eastern U.S. today, there is a little bit of a different sense of, of what failure is and what failure means. And it's rooted back in this time. Because like I said, it was either come here and succeed or come here and die. And as you'll quickly see in this next section... Not only did we come here, but those initially who came here succeeded quite well. All right, now we're going to shift gears just a little bit. So as a recap, we've taken a look at the settlements of Jamestown in the Chesapeake area, along with Plymouth and the Massachusetts Bay Colony or Salem up in the New England or the northern part and talk just briefly about how some of those other states eventually got filled in. Once you have the land and the people now, the next step is learning how to manage the people on those lands. And so Britain, of course, has colonies and lands throughout the entire world and is going to kind of do a few different things with America. Some of it's because of the proximity of America to England and it is going to be its cash cow um, is going to be primarily like the driving factor in this. But some of it also is just sometimes you have to try new stuff just to see what works and what doesn't. And it's going to be the inconsistency of a lot of these policies that's going to get Britain and America into a strained relationship, as you'll see. And so the first part that I want to go over is called mercantilism, M-E-R-C-A-N-T-I-L-I-S-M, mercantilism. Every country's goal should be to be self-sufficient and be able to provide everything that you need within the country so that you can export everything else out and not have to import so much and spend the money on the things that you can't produce. In this goal between Britain and America, Britain is going to use the colonies to supplement what they lack and control trade to help further its own interest. And the idea is you got to help the mother country or this, in this case, Britain, as much as you possibly can. And if the colonies kind of get sucked dry because the mother country is being a vampire, then, you know, so be it in the long run. That's just collateral damage that, that you take the chance on. So it's a little bit more of a short term goal. But. Again, it's kind of creating this pipeline of, of goods and commodities. So the colonies were forced to sell goods to the, to the mother nation. So in this case, America sends its resources to Britain. Britain then manufactures them and things like textiles and furniture and clothing and, and whatever else, and then sells those products directly back to the Americas. And so this is going to be a losing some game and a long, a long part. And 
Britain, to his credit, goes through phases with mercantilism and how strict it's going to be enforced on the American colonies. Because when it starts to look like the American colonies are getting a little sucked too dry money-wise to buy back all these products that are being made in Britain, Britain will then relax its trade policies with, with America and not be so so heavy-handed in enforcement. And that's when we get Americans trading with the Spanish and with the Dutch and with other countries. And all of a sudden there's a boom. Once that economic boom starts to happen, then Britain starts to kind of clamp down. And this process is mostly known as salutary neglect, right? Where there's different time periods where England will be really strict on enforcing trade policies and say, no, 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 you can only trade with us and nobody else. And then there'll be times when the crown relaxes those policies and let it, lets America trade kind of with whoever, whoever they want. And yet Britain's going to control this in different ways, whether it be through taxes and tariffs or, or militarily, um, you know, making sure people are trading with who they're supposed to. So that one of one example of this is the navigation acts of 1651. Britain said that America could only export to England and that three quarters of all the crews on the ships had to be British sailors. So you could have at most a quarter Americans and three quarters British. And so the Navigation Acts of 1651, very, very strict policy, but also not a lasting policy because eventually as Britain has continued involvement in more of these wars, more of these like European type wars, it's going to need more money. And the easiest way to get some of that money is either to tax Americans, but if they don't have the, enough money to pay, you're not going to really get it back or just relax the policies and let them go take money from their competitors, which is a lot of what would happen. Now, with that being said, the, the British leaders were kind of fickle in a way and constantly looked for ways to place more of American lands, kind of revoke those business charters and make sure that those lands come to the crown so that all the profits and proceeds would also go to the crown. And as the colonies, like we saw with, with Jamestown earlier, when they fail to be able to protect themselves on their own and the crown has to send over, send over soldiers to do so, that was an easy way to get your, your business charter revoked or just failing to follow new laws, whether it be tax laws or, or other laws um, being placed on. But remember we get, Jamestown in 1610, and now we're starting to get in the 1700s. About 100 years of aging is going on. You're starting to fill in the gaps with, with the land. But also you're starting to see just natural things happen. The south is going to become primarily agricultural, and the north will be very commercial with their business, with the shipping industries. And then the middle is just kind of this hybrid area. You're going to see some agricultural You'll see some shipping coming out of there, but in the end, all the mon all the colonies are really starting to prove themselves as kind of a big, big area of profit for the British crown. And then there's the event in Salem, Massachusetts in the 1690s that is going to start to see church and state drift apart. And as church and state drift apart, of course, the king is going to come in and and start to snatch some of that power that's now being left. So the Salem Witch Trials. 
Settler girls are going to accuse a native woman of witchcraft. And there's this snowball effect that all of a sudden, once one person is accused of witchcraft, anybody doing out anything outside of the realms of this strict puritanical society, you're going to be kind of seen as a witch. And so, for example, if you're a woman and you own land, you're probably going to be accused as a witch. If you're a woman who's doing things successful, probably a witch. And in the interpretation of, of Puritan doctrine became so strict that nobody really felt safe. And it took an accusation against the governor's wife for everybody to go, okay, you know, maybe we went a little too far with this. Everybody needs to start start calming down. 19 women were, hang, were hung. Another was crushed to death. Over 150 were put in prison. And yet not a single woman was ever found to be completely guilty of being a witch. There was enough evidence to to arouse suspicion and and maybe create the idea of guilt in somebody's mind. But no evidence really ever proved that anybody was 100 percent guilty. And because of this, people begin to separate from the church. And again, this is in the 1690s. So fast forward a little bit to the 1730s and 40s. And you see one of the first big recognizable movements in America is called the Great Awakening. This is the first Great Awakening. The second Great Awakening will take place closer in the 1790s, early 1800s. But in the 1730s and 1740s, this Great Awakening sought to reclaim lost souls in America. So this is a religious movement. And the importance is to get to one's church or get to church and find one's soul. And because of the increased amount of immigrants, and especially these religious dissident groups that were having a hard time finding a place in Europe, and you see see more and more coming over. Religion was very much a part of everyday life in early American history. And these groups all became become very attractive again. And the church becomes a focal point of the community in in early American history. And and again, this is kind of a way to excite the people, but also as a community outreach. Now, again, managing colonies through business. So you you see mercantilism, you see this process of salutary neglect of like sometimes we're going to enforce laws, sometimes not. You see the church starting to take a step back and then the crown starting to in, invade on that space a little bit more. With that being said, wars are going to naturally come to America because it is going to cost more for Britain on property damage to fight the wars maybe on its own on its own land. So why not try and transfer some of those wars over to the Americas? And of course, Spain knew about America. The French knew about America. They all have different strongholds at, at different points. And and because England a lot of times was the chief player in these wars, moving them to the America was obviously a smart idea. And so there's various wars. There's King William's War, Queen Anne's War, King George's War. All these wars cost a ton of money. And the, the mother country or England is looking at the colonies saying, hey, I need you to pay for this. And colonies are like, no, we're good. They're not our wars. It's not going to happen. Now we get to the Seven Years War that doesn't take seven years. Or you might know more commonly as the French and Indian War. 
in Americas, we're primarily looking at land disputes and and maps and who owns what lands. So it was really poorly handled by everybody involved. And this was a war that Americans had no desire to to get involved with after some of these other smaller wars. But it, this actually really served as a great place for the founding fathers to to get some experience. So by the time we get to the Revolutionary War, you know, shortly after, a, a lot of these a lot of these people like Ben Franklin, who helps unite colonists, looks at the Seven Years' War and says, hey, I had experience doing that there. George Washington was a British commander. But by the time we get to the Revolutionary War and he takes over the Continental Army, he knows the land. And American people get this experience of what fighting on their terrain looks like, which Native American tribes will be friendly to the American cause, which ones will not be friendly to the American cause. And this is this is where we're at. So the French and Indian War is really going to be the thing that severs this American and British relationship because after the war is over, and you'll see this as we get to another lecture, once the war is over, England sends America the bill. And America says, no, 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 no. Your last guy told us that we're cool. Like, we're not paying for it. That was part of our deal. And they said, yeah, but we're poor now. So now you got to pay for it. And this immediately starts starts with, uh, processes in motion that leads to American independence. So just in conclusion here, how did the early governments show the idea of American republicanism, the idea that like you should be proud to be an American? Well, first, representational government was established. It was established by the investors. The idea that we are going to have a person speak on behalf of a community that that started to instantly become part of american tradition and is seen today in our constitution and how we elect representatives to the house of representatives and senators to the senate on a national level but also on a state level as well second you see church influence in the north only be allowed to Church, I'm going to start that again. Church influence in the North only allowed the elect of God to be in government positions, but also set the idea that the social elite will continue to rule. And so when we're looking at American republicanism and kind of what is setting up the idea of our government and why our government, social elites are going to be the people that we look to in order to help bring us out of whatever calamity we might currently find ourselves in. But then the biggest one, Britain allowed the colonies to govern themselves through elected bodies. And this became just part of our tradition and what we were going to do. And with that, with that being said, this also gives people a voice in matters. And I don't think Britain was really prepared for what that voice was going to lead to in the end. But it introduces perspectives. It creates a sense of unity that we can all come together and we can solve our problems. And this is exactly the type of idea and attitude that's going to, going to take down Britain in the end is because Americans were used to assembling. Americans were used to having speakers on their behalf. They were used to social elites telling them what to do. And when the social elites say, this war is not good, Britain isn't treating us right. And representatives on our behalf ask the communities, what should we do? And the communities say, 
I can't handle these taxes. Something's got to be done. A change needs to be made. We all know where this is going. This is going to go towards the road to revolution. All right. So that's it. Thanks for, for sitting down and bearing with me on this and the rise of early colonies and how we get from Jamestown to tensions rising high and a change is going to be made. If you have any questions, please shoot me an email and I'll get back to you. Until next time, peace, love, and hugs.